0: Hello, and welcome to the Jubilee Church podcast. Jubilee Church exists to help all people know God, find family, discover purpose, and make a difference. If you would like to learn more or connect with us, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Thanks so much. Uh, Mary and I like being here. We've got so many friends, long-term friends here, you know, and uh, making new friends all the time. And uh, we really are pleased to be on mission together, and uh, it's refreshing for us to be here today. So uh, thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, we, we've been in a, a series. I'm saying we, because I'm, I'm part of this, this church here. <laughs> Whenever I'm here, I'm part of it. And uh, it's called Reply All Common Questions from New Christians. And the question that, was, uh, that fell to me is this question, does the Bible support slavery? Now, the, the short answer to that question is no. So we, I guess we could just quit and go home, but I, I would like to actually kind of unpack that a little bit. Maybe it would be good for us to do that. Um, first of all, just why, why, are we, why are we talking about this anyway? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, we want to talk about it because slavery is a terrible evil and it is an ongoing evil. It's happening all over the world. Around the world, there are an estimated 40.3 million victims trapped in modern slavery. Various kinds of slavery, that would include like sex trafficking. There would be 24.9 million in forced labor, 15.4 million in forced marriages. There are 5.4 victims of modern slavery for every 1,000 people in the world. One in four victims of of modern slavery are children. Oh, this is heartbreaking. So that's one reason we should talk about it. Because secondly, the Christian response to slavery and all kinds of of oppression will be strengthened when we actually learn what what the Bible really teaches. And then thirdly, the third reason I want to talk about it is because occasionally people who are hostile to the God that we know and love, have suggested that the Bible promotes slavery. And one of these is an atheist named Sam Harris. He wrote this in his letter to a Christian nation. In addressing the moral wisdom of the Bible, it's, used to, it's useful to consider moral questions that have been solved to everyone's satisfaction. Consider the question of slavery. The entire civilized world now agrees that slavery is an abomination. What moral instruction do we get from the God of Abraham on this subject? consult the Bible and you will discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. He backs this up by supplying a quotation from Leviticus that clearly says, you may buy and sell people from the nations around you. So this is a legit question and it really deserves a thoughtful answer. There's, I learned a new word while I was doing this. It's a prima facie. It's a legal term. It's Latin. It means at first view. It's an adjective that means sufficient to establish a fact or raise a presumption that will be uh, maintained unless disproved or rebutted effectively. So, and, he, and here's kind of the sequence for this, this one, this problem. The problem is the Bible translators talk about slaves. Secondly, in the Old Testament, no objection is made to having slaves. Third. In the New Testament, Christians are not commanded to free their slaves, and slaves are told to submit. Fourth, therefore, the Bible texts approve slavery. Five, we know slavery is wrong. Six, therefore, the Bible approves something that is wrong. So that's the argument. It's a challenge, as you can see, to the authority of Scripture. It's a a challenge to the goodness of God, a challenge to the Bible, And, and people that I love uh, have been led away by these kinds of challenges, um, challenges to the goodness of God, uh, or quest- questions, accusations that are actually posed as questions. I mean, it's really an accusation against God and the Bible. So I ha- we want to have answers, and the good news is that there are answers to these questions. Somebody told me a while back about a conversation he had with a loved one a, the loved one was a bright university professor who, who might believe that there was a God but is not following Jesus in any discernible way. And, and this professor was not interested in either defending or uh, attacking the Bible, he was, but he was surprised to think, hear that anyone thought the Bible uh, condoned slavery. And I wasn't surprised that he was surprised because this is is really mostly an issue for those who are either challenging the goodness of God and the authority of Scripture or people like me who are interested in disarming those challenges. So, so slavery comes up in those challenges, and so we want to respond to that. And I want to start by looking at the Old Testament. So, in the Old Testament, there's one word that we need to know. This is the word, it looks funny. It's pronounced eved or plural, uh, avadim, and this is the word that means slave. So, um, and I want to make six points about that word, six things about that word. Okay, first thing is the word is translated servant and sometimes translated slave. The history of of trends in translating, because this word can be translated either way or is translated either way, Um, It's fascinating. The the, the translation of the word shifted over time. Most Western languages have two words for someone who works for someone else, a a, a nice word and a less nice word, you know. Um, And so, like slave and servant in English, and these are assigned based on context. So in Isaiah, the Messiah is the servant of the Lord. But in Exodus, the law is about slaves, but it's the same word in Hebrew, Jesus, the, the, you know, the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, and the, this other word. Western language have, for reasons that I cannot quite comprehend, increasingly moved toward away from servant words to slave words. So in English, the King James Version, the 1611 version, had two occurrences of the word slave in the whole Bible, one in the Old Testament, one in the New. Uh, later... The, the New King James Version had 46 occurrences, then the NIV had 130, and the New Revised Standard Version had 166, which basically means one of them, they're translating it almost always servant, and the other, almost always slave. So I think that's pretty fascinating. The same thing actually has happened in other uh, Western languages, like in German. Um, the, Martin Luther uh, did a translation of the Bible and in the 19, he lived in the 1500s, but in the, the 1912 version of the Luther Bible, there were zero occurrences of the word slave. But then in 1984, a later version of that Bible had 70, and a later version than that in 1993 had 161 occurrences. So for some reason, there's, there is a shift toward translating using the less the less pleasant of the two words that actually are the same word in both Hebrew and Greek. So I I think that's fascinating. Oh, Spanish, by the way, the same thing. 1909, four occurrences. 1960, 25. 1995, 65. So that's the trend. Now, the one occurrence in the King James um, is in Jeremiah 2.14, Two fourteen, and it says this says the servant then slave, and the second word is like in like italics or small text, which means it doesn't occur in the Hebrew text. It's just there to supply the parallelism. You're following that? It's like you you want to say two things that sound that you use two different phrases to describe the same thing, you know, a parallelism. So so that's that's how it fits there. So um, in order the order gets switched, you know, and uh, moves towards slave. And by the 1990s, I mean, by the 1980s, people think this word means slave. And then here's what they do. They attach the meaning to that word based on whatever they know about slavery from their own culture and their own history. So other languages like Russian and Hungarian use one word all the time. And in Russian, that word is rob. Uh, R-A-B, which is related to a word from which, by the way, we get our word robot, which actually means a worker. I think that's kind of fun, isn't it? So robot. Do you feel like that at work sometimes? Like, I'm just a robot. Anyway, some, some languages differentiate, others don't. So this word is not translated consistently. The Hebrew word avadim is frequently translated either servants or slaves, but on a number of occasions, it occurs twice in the same verse in English translations and can have a kind of a curious effect, especially when it comes to uh, contemporary discussions about slavery. The word for domestic slaves or servants in Exodus is the same word used for the servant of the Lord, Jesus the Messiah in Isaiah. Same word. So a modern reaver, you'd never guess this you know, from the context, we would assume that actually there's like loads of space, clear blue water, between oppressive, bad slavery, like in the book and the two movies, uh, 12 Years a Slave. That's a book that a guy wrote. Uh, see, it was written in 18, 1853 memoir of a slave near, uh, who, who actually lived through slavery. And then I think it's been made into films a couple times. So, you, you know, you would think, okay, there's that, and you would never put that on the same, like, like if you're a servant in Downton Abbey, you wouldn't think it would be the same word, but in the Bible it is. So um, we'd be astonished to hear Moses called the Lord's slave, but Jesus, uh, or Jesus referred to as my slave, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. But it's the same word. So look at this verse from Leviticus. This actually shows us what that looks like. It says, for they are my servants, see the word, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt, they shall not be sold as slaves. But you can see, it's the same word. There are lots of other examples uh, of that in the Old Testament. One I, I like, the wife, this is in uh, Elijah, Elisha, uh, one of the prophets in Second Kings. He's, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets came to Elisha said, your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. It's the same word all three times. So it's translated both ways, and it's not inherently negative. It's related to work. It doesn't describe any class of people. It's a relational word for a person who's in a dependent relationship with somebody else. Um, and this could encompass a wide range of economic relationships like permanent employment in exchange for provision and protection that would be one one of those it does mean subservient so when a number of places in the in the bible someone will say to someone else what what would the lord say what would the, my lord say to his servant and when then they ask this it's not just polite it's expressing that there's a social obligation like i have to listen to you you know social obligation and, and, and in, in, the, in the Bible, the, the, the subjects of, of, like in Israel, anybody who lives in Israel is, is regarded as the servant of the king. So when David's the king, if I'm living in Israel and David is the king, I'm the king's servant. I mean, even if I never see him, he, that's, that's the relationship that we have with one another. And, um, and then, this was also true in the ancient Near East, that, that the, the king was was the servant of the deity. And this would be true whether the deity was Yahweh or some other god. There was this idea that the king had to answer to some sort of a deity, some something larger than himself. So um, that's why he was in his position. He was put there by some god and owed allegiance to that god. So, um, and then, there, there, this leads to this thing, which I think is really important. There were very few of what we might call free people in the ancient Near East. Almost everybody in the Old Testament is the servant of somebody. Nobody's really free to do just, like, whatever they want. And there are reasons for this. Like, you, you realize, back in those days, in those locations, there, there weren't any police. And there weren't any phones, so you couldn't, you couldn't call the police because there weren't any police and you didn't have a phone. So what are you gonna do? You're, you're vulnerable. How are you gonna get justice? How are you gonna get protection? So, um, so, so what you had to do was get associated with somebody who could protect you. So an example of this is in Genesis 14. You, it's in your best interest to trade your autonomy for security by becoming a vassal of someone who's close and powerful. Now, as I mentioned in Genesis 14, there's a, this tells us about Abraham, and Abraham is one of those powerful people. I mean, he's a big-time rancher. He's rich. He's got lots and lots of cattle, herds, and, and he had a, 318 men working for him, all who had been trained to fight. So basically, this guy's got a private army, right? Right? Like cowboys, living in a country where there's no police to call, the herdsmen learned how to take care of themselves, how to deal with thieves, how to deal with threats. And in addition, Abraham's friend Mamre, the Amorite, was a leader of a clan, and he had a couple brothers, and they were all friends with Abraham, and they were all committed to stand up for one another and fight together if they had to. So I'm thinking... If you send me, if I time travel back to then, I want to get right next to neighborhood, in the neighborhood with Abraham, and say, "Hey Abraham, I read about you in the Bible, and man, I would just like to be close to you, and you know, do what I can to help you. I mean, that would be a good move for me." If Abraham said, "Oh yeah, Tim, I welcome you, welcome you, yeah, call me if you need anything. Oh wait, uh, send somebody over if you need anything. You know, it would it's that kind of thing." <laughs> so I, I would, I would. I would love to be like hooked up with him if I lived back then. So, um, and, and, and then here's another thing. Under the Old Testament law, there were provisions for the poor and for those who had accumulated debt. And one of those was that you could sell yourself to someone more prosperous. But it was, it was only a temporary deal because, because, um, because, because here's the law, Deuteronomy 15, 12. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you, and serve you six years. In the seventh year, you must let them go free. Now, there's an, an interesting addendum that's, that follows this command. It addresses the possibility that when the seventh year comes, the servant says, hey, I like it here. I feel protected. I feel secure. I like working for you. I'd prefer to stay. If this happens and the master accepts the offer, they seal the deal by piercing the ear. And that's a sign, basically, I've chosen... I've chosen, it's in my best interest, I'd just as soon stay here permanently. So, So you're seeing there's nuances in these relationships, a variety of ways that it works. Here's another thing we need to understand. The Old Testament law includes regulations on things that are not actually God's will. In Matthew 19, there's an example of this. It has to do with marriage, but the principle applies. This is the story where, Pharisees come to Jesus and test him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus says, haven't you read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. Therefore what God has joined together, nobody should separate. And they said, well, then why did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? <laughs> By the way, that's not exactly what he said. He, he didn't say, send her away. He said, if you're going to break this thing up, well, he says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it wasn't so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife accepts her sexual immorality and marries it, commits adultery, he's, he's basically saying, listen, I don't like this thing, but it is going to happen. It's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. So, so if it does happen, you can't just kick your spouse out with some sort of legal agreement or declaration. So, so I think another example of this is like if a lawmaker were to vote for a bill that limits abortion, we wouldn't assume that they think abortion is morally, that uh, they don't think you know abortion is morally wrong. To limit something is not to approve it. So... And I think there are other things like that, like polygamy. Uh, it's not the created order of never God's intention. Lots of the Old Testament heroes had, had multiple wives. But the narrative of the Old Testament is very clear. Having multiple wives is a bad idea. <laughs> it, doesn't, it never goes well. There's always trouble associated with it. And there's, a, there's an old joke that I heard one time that... that there's one, one of the best arguments against polygamy is the verse in the Bible that says, no man can serve two masters. So that's, a, that's kind of a joke. You were supposed to laugh there. So, and, but the truth is, it's not a joke, is that the Mosaic law included protections for second wives. So, so basically, if you do this thing that I don't want you to do, there's some limitations on it that I'm going to impose on you. I'm going to put some, some barriers here if you do this thing that I don't actually want you to do. And, and permanent servitude might fit in this category. God, God regulates it, that doesn't mean he likes it. And, and I wanna, this is an important line. If you are not happy with something in the Old Testament, consider the possibility that God wasn't happy with it either. So, so there's that. So then we, we, we're gonna talk about the New Testament, but before we do that, uh, uh, we don't, I wanna look at this little chart. This chart um, that, that describes differences in different kinds of slavery. Now, I'm opposed to all of them, but let's just look at the differences. Under the old, old covenant, people who were in these relationships, got holidays, had food, legal redress, legal, legal redress sexual protection, couldn't be kidnapped, couldn't be chained, couldn't be tortured, or couldn't uh, be physically abused. In Rome, it wasn't quite so good. Uh, No holidays, no promise of food, no legal redress, no sexual protection, could be kidnapped, might be chained, might be tortured, might be physically abused. Now, the the last one is is New World. Uh, Basically, what we're talking about in the final column is the kind of slavery that was Practice prior to abolition in the United States. And this is awful. Uh, Holiday, yes. No guarantee of food, no legal redress, no sexual protection, could be kidnapped, could be chained, could be tortured, could experience physical abuse. Now I wanna say, there is none of those that we like. Right? None of them that we like. But it is also fair to say that the Old Testament version of this is a little bit less horrible than the other two. So, so anyway, I'm so glad we're not. So there. <clears throat> so there's that. So now we talk a little bit about the New Testament. And as we, uh, the Roman and Greek culture in the first century had, had multiple varieties of slavery. The churches Paul writes to in his epistles included free people, bond servants, and slaves. They all worshiped together. And the New Testament was written in Greek, and here's here's the Greek word for slave. We'll see that next. This word is pronounced doulos, and like the Old Testament word, similarly, it can be translated slave or servant or bondservant. And as in the Old Testament, it was fairly common for intelligent or talented people to give up their freedom and autonomy for for the security of a really good job. They would do that sometimes. in the Mediterranean world of the first century, the, the line between slavery and patronage could be pretty thin. I looked up the historical roots of patronage. One definition was uh, a patron in ancient Rome is the former owner and frequently the protector of a freed slave. And, 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 and in that time, I mean, basically, a, this patronage things means I, I, I'll commit my loyalty to you and you provide protection or help for me. So. That, that's what it looked like. And, and, and slaves could even have slaves. And slaves were doctors. And some slaves had jobs comparable to that of like a university professor. And, and there were masters that were abusive, but it wasn't really within the, the power of the masses to put an end to this system. There were attempted slave revolts, but they didn't turn out well. So, so the question I have here is how does Paul address the churches on this matter? Well, this is cool. The first thing he does, and this is in 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul groups kidnappers and slave traders among the worst kinds of sinners. And he is an outright prohibition of stealing and selling people. It's emphatic, and it constitutes a knockdown biblical argument against the West African trade, slave trade, along with trafficking, of all sorts of other vile practices since then. And you can look that up if you're interested. It's 1 Timothy 1.10. And by the way, stealing people was also a capital offense under the law of Moses. So then then secondly, he gives us some instructions, uh, both to slaves and and indentured servants. In 1 Corinthians 7, writing to a church that included slaves, he says, if you can get your freedom, take the opportunity. He doesn't even qualify it by saying, unless you got a particularly sweet job, which I think might mean that Paul says, actually you know getting out of that system is actually even better i mean he he seems to really want people to be liberated so that they can they can follow jesus as completely as possible without limitation and so he says get get the get out of that situation if you have a chance to and and you have to realize the possibility that what he's saying might actually feel like a demotion for people who took him up on it so you can see that so um Get out of it if you can. Um, Where am I? Uh, He he says, get out if you can. And then in Ephesians uh, 6, verses 5 through 9, he says, slaves, obey your your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they're slave or free. Now, the question has been raised about this, whether Paul is condoning something that is fundamentally immoral. In a nutshell, he says, if a Christian is a slave, they're to serve faithfully as if serving Christ himself and to remember that their true reward is from the Lord. That's pretty much it. That's a good summary. So the question then is, does that involve Paul condoning something that is fundamentally immoral? And the answer is no. It does not. So to tell someone what to do if X happens is not to condone X but merely to recognize that sometimes X happens as, as all pastors know, as all of us know. Sometimes X happens. And so if I counsel someone who's been physically assaulted to respond in a uh, In a certain way, I'm not condoning physical assault. If I urge someone who's been wrongfully dismissed to react without malice, I'm not signing off on the wrongful dismissal or saying it doesn't matter, merely saying that we're responsible to handle all of these things in a godly way. To speak less hypothetically for Paul and Peter to urge believers to rejoice in and bear up under persecution is not somehow to applaud the persecution of Christians nor to treat it as morally neutral neutral but to teach believers in all situations however difficult to respond the way God would have them respond. Andrew Wilson writes I'm sure that if I were speaking to a cross-cultural, in a cross-cultural mission context in which slavery was both rife and legal in society and common within the church and in which runaway slaves faced the death penalty, I would find Paul's teaching here of invaluable benefit. I would probably find it extremely difficult to know how to advise them without it. So his teaching to slaves cannot be invoked in support of a claim that he condoned something immoral. Much of the Greco-Roman slavery was appalling, although it it varied significantly from place to place. But Paul does not condone abuse, beating, oppression that frequently went on. He simply tells believers how to respond to it. Then the third thing that he does, um, after giving instructions to the slaves, He gives some instructions to masters, and some of the best news about slavery comes in these two passages, Ephesians uh, 6, 9, and Colossians 4, 1. He says, Masters, do the same to them, that is, serve your slaves as if serving the Lord. Just pause there. Serve your slaves as if serving the Lord, and look to him for your reward, and stop threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there's no partiality with him. And then in Colossians 4.1, he says, masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And I think if we look closely at these verses, we will see that far from defending slavery, it would be more fair to credit Paul for laying the foundation for the abolition of slavery. I mean, if you start doing that stuff, you know, you start treating them like you would treat the Lord, I mean, this is going to change things. So <clears throat> then, then the, the briefest of Paul's letters is one he wrote to a guy named Philemon. And Philemon was a wealthy man, part of a church in Colossa, and uh, Paul regarded him as a friend. And Philemon had a slave uh, named Onesimus. The name, uh, by the way, means helpful. And, uh, and if I'd known that, I might have named one of my kids Onesimus. That's a, that's a good name. Helpful. At some point, Onesimus took off and, and eventually Paul, he found Paul, probably in Rome. And uh, Paul was really grateful to have him around because he was really, really helpful, like his name. But he also felt an obligation to Philemon. So he sends Onesimus back with a letter in which he's basically trying to make the case that Philemon should send him back. He says things to Philemon like, you know, you wouldn't even be a Christian if, you know, it weren't for me. I mean, you owe me your life, so, uh, you know, why don't you let this guy come and help me? <laughs> and so he's fairly coercive. But but in the in the process of this, I like the way Paul talks about slavery in this letter to Philemon. This is Philemon, one. it's only one chapter, so it's verses 15 and 16. Paul says to Philemon, perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, better than a slave, a beloved brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. Now listen, this kind of thinking will eventually bring slavery to an end. When you start thinking about other people as brothers and sisters, start thinking about them like family, Slavery is in trouble. So, and I, I just love the way he talks about it. And when, it, when I read a sentence like this with the word, you know, like slave and brother in the same sentence, I can't help but think of Martin Luther King and things that he said, you know, about brotherhood, about the, the, the brotherhood of humanity. So, so, what's our conclusion here? Well, Jesus said that he came to serve, and Jesus came and took the role of a slave. And he did die a slave's death. Crucifixion was was a slave's death. And the New Testament word slave is is also used to describe somebody who gives himself or herself up to another's will, to serve Christ and to to extend and advance his cause on earth. And it's in this awareness that Paul opens his letter to the Romans by referring to himself, depending on your translation, as the servant of, the bondservant, or the slave of Christ Jesus. Now, this subservient attitude is what Jesus expected of, of all of his followers. And, and I, I do want to say that, that Jesus calls us his brothers and sisters. So he's, he, this, he's tr- very familiar with this. And he says, you know, my father is your father. So we, there's an amazing acceptance, but... But it can also be true at the same time that he is our Lord. He's the Lord. And so um, Paul recognizes this. He says, I'm the the, the slave of Jesus. And that's not a bad thing. This subservient attitude is what he expected of his disciples. And he he said in Mark um, 10, 44, whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And that's hard because he's not just saying that I actually need to submit to him. He means like, I got to put other people's interests above my own. And that's tough. And this, but it's a challenge that we want to embrace because we want to be like Jesus. And he's, he's the perfect example. It's more than an example, though. It's more than an example. I, I like the way this old chorus that we used to sing puts it. It's a prayer, really, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing it as a prayer, okay? It goes like this. I'm going to close my eyes and raise my hands like I'm praying. It goes like this. You sat down at the right hand of the Father in majesty. You sat down at the right hand of the Father in majesty. You are crowned Lord of all. You are faithful, righteous, and true. You're my master. You're my owner. And I love serving you. Amen.